I don't feel hungry. I don't feel stuffed. I don't feel guilty. I still look buff. I feel like finally snacking tastes the way it should. I just had so this and now I feel good. Hello and welcome back to the Global Inquirer. We are an undergraduate research podcast that uses case studies to explain how global trends are impacting real lives. We've been on a bit of a hiatus here, but we've been working hard as ever. If you haven't already, I encourage you to go back and check out our latest live episode. The stream is still up on Facebook, or you can listen to the audio version on whatever podcast streaming service you use. I'm your host, Balthazar Marin, and I'm here with Gabriela Soriano, a third-year exchange student majoring in Middle Eastern Studies and Politics. All right, Gabriela, can you tell me how you stumbled upon this kind of quirky subject we're going to be talking about today? It's actually really interesting. So over spring break, I went to Berkeley to visit one of my closest friends. And, you know, the first thing you do on spring break is just go and attend a lecture because that's the normal thing to do. And I essentially uh, sat in one of her lectures called Food, Drink, Culture, and Politics. I love food. I love politics. So I was really drawn to like the content of the lecture. So that day, he discussed the politics of poverty, and he mentioned that the next week, the class would be studying the homeless wars. As soon as he said that, something clicked in my head, and I went to him, and I told him that I was from the Middle East, and I was very interested in this topic, and essentially, I interviewed him after that. Okay, so um, I started to record. So what was the content of that interview? What did you learn from him? So essentially, we discussed how Lebanon and Israel are engaged in a cultural battle over the national identity of Hamas, and the fact that Lebanon and Israel both claim ownership to Hamas, among other dishes, is indicative of culinary nationalism, or gastro-nationalism. Lebanese and Israeli food industries fuel gastro-nationalism as they employ national sentiment to promote Hamas and render it easily accessible to their respective populations. Essentially, food nationalism can be summarized by this quote, Tell me what you eat, and I will tell you who you are. This quote is attributed to a 19th century French gastronome, but it still resonates in today's culinary affairs. So the trend of attaching national rights to food reflects the political, cultural, and economic dynamics of food nationalism. Many governments actually label and framework certain foods, thus nationalizing them. So in the European Union, there's this framework called the Protected Geographical Status, which aims to safeguard this process to make sure some governments actually do have the authority to brand food items as national. That's how feta cheese became a protected Greek brand. This essentially hinders non-Greek manufacturers from copying the original traditional product and marketing it like the original. The same goes for champagne in France, for example. Hamas, however, is a very different story. In your interview with Professor Zouk, you gave a couple of examples where countries and principalities and states might not actually care about, you know, the, this branding and nationalizing food. What makes hummus different and what does the context of the Middle East have to do with it? Uh, this, this, is, this is largely an ancient conflict that's playing out in modernity because it, this conflict would have made no sense before the era of national boundaries. Yeah. It would only have been about cultural influence, and nobody, quite frankly, 500 years ago, nobody would have thought to claim hummus as their own. It only makes sense now in the era of nationalism and in the context of one of the most tightly contested boundaries in the world, which is you know the line that's drawn between Israel and Palestine. 
It started as a marketing stunt by the U.S.-based food company Sabra, then jointly owned by PepsiCo and Strauss, one of the largest food companies in Israel, to produce the world's largest hummus plate. So this marketing stunt aimed to increase the sales of hummus in the U.S., but the real arena was the Levant region. It was actually another Israeli food company called Osem, which is a major competitor of Strauss, that set the Guinness World Record for the biggest hummus plate, as it produced an 880-pound hummus bowl that was eaten publicly in Jerusalem. Evidently, this angered a lot of Lebanese chefs, who basically retaliated with an even bigger bowl of hummus. So Lebanon beat Israel's record by preparing a dish, a hummus dish, weighing 4,532 pounds. So the Lebanese hummus plate was part of a campaign by the Association of Lebanese Industrialists dubbed Hands Off Our Dishes because it intended to stop Israel from branding hummus as Israeli. This basically triggered a series of weird flexes between Lebanon and Israel because Israel retaliated again. Soon thereafter, 50 chefs in the Arab-Israeli village of Abu Ghosh, these chefs prepared an 8,992-pound dish of hummus. But then, Lebanon ultimately won the hummus wars because on May 8, 2010, Lebanese chef Ramzi Shwaidi and 300 student chefs from a Lebanese university prepared the largest serving of hummus to date on the largest ceramic plate in the world. The hummus itself weighed 23,042 pounds and 12 ounces. So you can see how much of a big deal hummus is in the region. Well, I mean, that's overall just like a, a lot of hummus. I don't even... Yeah. I don't even know how many chickpeas goes into all that, but um, it really seems like kind of a proxy for greater pre-existing issues. No, you're um, absolutely right. Um, so vying for the Guinness World Record for the largest dish of any food is a form of claymaking intended to declare cultural ownership. Lebanon viewed the competition as a patriotic event so as to reaffirm Lebanese national heritage. On the Israeli side, an IDF radio broadcaster dubbed the event as the Third Lebanon War. So you can see that there are very heavy political connotations to the hummus wars. I mean, yeah, that's obviously no small claim. I guess it was probably a bit of a joke, but still you can see the degree of seriousness to which you know, the Middle East jealously safeguards its hummus. Absolutely. And it's funny because one of the major Lebanese news channels called OTV posted a video on YouTube to document the last world record. And the title wasn't Lebanon beats Guinness World Record or anything. No, it was hummus is 100% Lebanese and has been for hundreds of years. This just goes to show how the first Israeli record constituted a symbolic attack on Lebanese nationalism or Lebanese national heritage. And even the minister of tourism back then, Fadi Haboud, stated that the Lebanese conducted deep historical research to prove that Lebanon was indeed the first country to export hummus in 1959. So yeah, this is, this is no joke. This is a real cultural dispute between Lebanon and you know, Israel. But there's something interesting about this that I discussed with Professor Darren Zouk, actually. It's that Lebanon obviously isn't the only Arab country that claims ownership to Hamas. You have Syria, you have Palestine, you have all these other countries. One of the, one of the reasons to deny Israel the rights to, to claiming the oldest hummus recipe is a way of saying you're inauthentic in the region, right? You're, you're, you're latecomers, you're, you're, you're imposing your ancient history on what is in fact a modern state. And that's why it ties directly into the Middle East conflict. 
because you know that's part of the claim is this was Palestinian land, and you had these newcomers who came and usurped the land. And so the same thing is like you're trying to usurp the hummus recipe. Now, of course, there's there's also two Arabic words that get used to describe the times of authenticity that happen here. One is Wataniya, which is, and then the other one is Kalmia. So you've got who owns hummus? Is it Lebanon as the nation, or is the Lebanese people as a culture? So do other countries take umbrage with this Israeli labeling hummus as their national product? Yes, this cultural dispute can actually be absorbed within the general framework of the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. In Palestine, for example, there are talks of a new food wave. There's this Palestinian chef called Fadi Katan who says that many chefs like him want to make Palestinian traditional food, but with a modern twist, you know. It's a way for them to get creative with fewer resources while simultaneously making a political statement about the identity of these foods. So is there a strong background, a historical foundation for this kind of intertwining of Arabness and kind of what hummus is? There is actually, and it's deeply ingrained in the history of Zionism in Israel. So it all started with the incorporation of Arab slash Palestinian elements into the Zionist diet and ended with the de-Arabization, or more precisely, de-Palestinianization of food. (laughs) Dubbing these dishes as Jewish Mizrahi served to minimize the influence of Arabness in the cultural and political formation of the State of Israel. Eventually, the Israeli government started to conflate these traditional Arab dishes with Israeliness. An example of this can be seen in one of Israel's most recognized postcards, This postcard depicts pita bread with falafel with an Israeli flag stuck on the peak of the pita, and it's called falafel, Israel's national snack. So after the formation of the State of Israel in 1948, hummus grew in popularity thanks to the ascent of what is called the Oriental Restaurant. It's interesting because these restaurants were mostly opened by Mizrahi Jewish immigrants, and it's very indicative of this very strange and complicated dichotomy between Arabness and Middle Eastern Jewishness, if that makes any sense. Many Israeli cookbooks and many Israeli chefs dub these dishes as Jewish Mizrahi so as to detach Middle Eastern Jews from their Arab origins. But it's also complicated because in Israel, simultaneously, a lot of people say that the best hummus is prepared by Arab. I mean, it's safe to say that there could be a disconnect between the identity politics that exist as we see it and kind of what the facts on the ground are. True, true. But ultimately, it all boils down to the fact that the Israeli government really does try to attribute Israeliness to certain dishes that are traditionally perceived as Arab. How how would you say this is different from Montreal, kind of? And Montreal is like now like the second home to the bagel, trying to usurp New York. I guess it's because... Well, in my opinion, it's because there is no political conflict between Montreal and New York. That's what I'm trying to get at. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what's interesting is that this food war isn't being carried out along economic lines. Um, you have examples like Champagne, where you can't make Champagne in America. It can only be made in the Champagne region of France. You can use the same recipe, and you can still have bubbly wine. You just can't market it as such. But that same situation doesn't seem to apply to hummus it seems like the vitriol and like the animosity that is being stirred up, pun intended, <laughs> here is purely a consequence of this 
these cultural politics and this kind of nationalism and trying to nationalize it's everything. It's true. It's actually true. Although it is interesting to note that initially it did kind of start as an economic competition between two Israeli food companies. Like I said previously, the hummus wars initially started as a sort of informal battle between two major Israeli food companies, but then it escalated into a cultural battle of national implications between Lebanon and Israel. It just goes to show how nationalism prevails over economic interests. Yeah, usually not often the case, but I guess when it comes to the hummus... So I actually used to work for a pretty well-known Israeli chef, and his whole thing was that he had these Arabic roots, but also these Jewish roots, uh, a grandmother from North Africa who taught him how to hand-roll couscous, kind of a, a real mixed bag, and his food reflected that. He had dishes from all over the Levant, uh, North Africa, pulling from spices and all of his kind of culinary teachings. And I guess what I'm trying to get at is how do you separate an often kind of obscure background and history from these kind of borders and man-made delineations? We all knew the answer to that. <laughs> um, well, I think ultimately the role of Mizrahi Jews, like the chef you worked for, and Arab citizens of Israel is really indicative of identity struggles in, in Israel because there, Israeli Jews usually eat in Arab-owned hummus joints and there are kind of double standards when it comes to the cultural production of both Arabs and Mizrahi Jews. After the formation of the State of Israel in 1948, both Arabs and the Mizrahi Jews represented the Oriental Other in Israel. In other words, Ashkenazi Zionist settlers sought to substitute their culture with Middle Eastern cuisine while still relegating Arabs and Mizrahi Jews to the margins of Israeli society. Today, these asymmetrical dynamics apply to the power structure between Israeli Jews altogether and Arabs. So on the one hand, everybody in Israel claims that Arabs are the ones who make the best hummus, but on the other hand, their identity is still very ill-defined. The Israeli food scene continues to define Arab-made hummus as the best type of hummus. So for example, Israeli food companies started to integrate Arab hummus chefs in their marketing campaigns. And there's the whole peculiar dynamics of the Arab-Israeli village of Abu Ghosh that I mentioned way back that enables Arab chefs to freely make their hummus. There was actually this TV commercial that aired in Israel in which Jewish and Arab chefs in the village of Abu Ghosh united through the power of hummus. And the slogan was, hummus is either made with love or not made at all. This is obviously an oversimplification after everything we've covered, but still, you know, you can have these neutral places like Abu Ghosh where identity doesn't necessarily matter. So you can be Israeli Arab and that can be fine. But ultimately, yeah, Hamas is very indicative of a real political struggle. Gabriella, thank you so much for joining us today, giving us a little history of the Hummus Wars. And that's all we have for you this week. If you like this episode, be sure to drop a like or comment on SoundCloud or check us out on Spotify or really any podcast streaming service. Be sure to tune in next week where I sit down with Sarah to discuss how mental health and technology are intersecting in some pretty dark ways. Stay up to date with Global Inquirer on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. See you next week.